morning. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to Acts chapter 2. We're going to wrap up uh, this little series within the series. And this series within the series is called, Am I a Christian? And this is, uh, I, I didn't know this obviously at the beginning, but when we started off on this little path, um, which I thought, like normal, was just going to be one sermon that then turned into four or five, uh, this has been one of my favorite series that we've ever done as a church. Am I a Christian? And it's just going back to the basics. And that's what we've been doing here, uh, starting in Acts chapter 2, verse 37. We're seeing the response to the very first sermon ever, knowing that the response to the first sermon ever is an indicator to us on how all people should respond uh, throughout the generations. And so uh, we're, we're seeing the answer to the question, am I a Christian? How do we know? Well, first, has the gospel cut to your heart? We saw in week one that there is no gospel con- conversion apart from gospel conviction. And then uh, after that, there's an appropriate response, which Peter says is to repent and be baptized. Uh, And so repentance then is not just a quick raise of the hand. Uh, It is a total transformation. It is, I was going this way, now I'm going that way. As we said it, it is emotional because we understand the Father's love for us in the midst of our rebellion. It is practical because we were doing this and now we're doing that. And it is intellectual because we used to think this way and now we think this way. And then last week, we saw what happens next. You receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and this is for every believer that you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit then helps us grow spiritually. Now, what we're going to look at today is Acts chapter 2, verse 40, and it is a warning that Peter provides to these individuals. Let's look first at Acts 2, 40, uh, and then I'll kind of tell you where we're headed this morning. Acts 2, 40, and with many other words... With many other words, okay? This is the excuse for me to preach long sermons, by the way. They did so right from the beginning. There was a significant passage of time here uh, in in the makeup of this sermon. And so with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying. In other words, Peter's like, I know I got through that first part, but I have some more things to say. Uh, And so, you know, bear with me, crowd. I'm going to keep instructing and keep teaching all of you. And, And so Peter is laying this all out to them. And then he gets to these incredible words, and they're in quotations, um, save yourselves from this crooked generation. What a line. At the end of the opening sermon, Peter, is, he's preached the, 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 the base nature of the gospel. He's then used many other words, whatever those were, and he gets to the end and he goes, okay, now guys, save yourselves from this crooked generation. This morning, what I want to do is I want to ask a couple of questions. Question number one is, well, what is a crooked generation? And the follow-up to question number one would be, and are we in one? Question number two then would be, how do we save ourselves from a crooked generation? And then question number three is, how do you combat or how do we combat a crooked generation? And so this morning, I'm just going to warn you up front, I'm going to speak very clearly because what is not helpful in the midst of a crooked generation is confusion. I ended my sermon here last week uh, that in the midst of a confused world, what that confused world does not need is a confused church. And so our role as followers of Christ, my role as a pastor is to make clear what the world has confused. And so that is my aim this morning. And as we look at this uh, particular question, this first question, what is a crooked generation? We see that there are two patterns that emerge in the scriptures of a crooked generation. And these are not... the idea of a crooked generation, it's kind of pervasive throughout the scriptures. We see it in Noah. We see it uh, in, in the time of the exile. We see it in the wilderness. We see it, um, of course, here with Christ. There's a reference to Daniel. Paul's going to reference later about the crooked generation. And so this is a common theme throughout the scriptures. And here in this particular crooked generation, uh, here are two things that we see. One, there is an absolute denial of truth. And two, There is a self-salvation based on performance. Before I get into the rest of it, the particular group that Peter is talking to, who is he talking to? 
Who was the crooked generation that they were referencing, particularly in that moment? The, the Jewish individuals who had just killed Jesus. Now, killing Jesus, yes, certainly, that would make you quite crooked, right? And I don't even need to obviously define the word crooked. We all know what that means. It's off the path, right? It's not straight. And, uh, and where it has gone awry is one of two ways, an absolute denial of truth or a form of religion that appears good but is not, a self-salvation based on performance. And so what I want to do is I want to walk us through both of those this morning. And I will say one of them might get you excited. The other one will probably convict you. You can probably already guess which one is which. And I want to lay it out clearly because it is important that as the church, we, we, we look at both sides of this, understanding that both false religion and suppression of truth are equally antagonistic to the gospel. Both are. And we will look at Jesus' harshest words, and Jesus' harshest words were not reserved for the suppressors of truth. They were reserved for who? The religious. Now, what we'll do is we'll start um, with the first one. Uh, the, the first pattern of a crooked generation is this, an absolute rejection of truth. We see this in the crucifixion of Christ first, right? That there were two parties that brought Christ to the cross, right, from a practical perspective. Pilate, who represents the world, and what question famously did he ask? What is truth? And the other that brought Christ to the cross was the religious, Caiaphas, uh, the, the, the leader of the Sanhedrin. Both parties, both the world and religion, both the good and the bad, crucified Jesus. And so this first one is the, what we would typically label as the bad, right? The unrighteous, the, the truth suppressors. And so here is probably the quintessential passage that discusses that. It's in Romans chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, you can flip over there. Let me read Romans 1, 18 through 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, and I would add is plain to everybody, because God has shown it to them. God has revealed himself for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, clearly perceived, ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Two reasons they are without excuse. One, it is as clear as day. Literally, the day comes and you realize somebody made this. It's clear. That's why they're without excuse. Also, uh, all generations are without excuse because this has been since the creation of the world. In other words, it is not culture, right? Uh, it is not modernity. It's not the internet. Uh, it's not like a particular subset of the world that makes people think, oh, there must not be a God. What is it? Uh, because it's been the same in every generation. This is also why, by the way, I don't buy into all of the lies of like, oh, well, this generation, you have to talk to them like this. You have to do like this. No, no. The core problem is the same. So they were without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Why do people reject God? It's not because the church has been mean. It's not because, uh, oh, because I live in this particular time period or because I live here, or I do this, or I do that. No, why do people reject God? Because they did not honor him. Because they don't honor him. Because they don't honor God. It's clear that he exists, but they, uh, they honor him not. But they become what? Futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. I've said this before, it seems like, uh, at least in our country, over the last couple of years, like a collective darkening has just fallen. And you look around and you go, man, what, what used to be clear is no longer clear. What used to be obvious seems no longer obvious. What used to be acceptable is no longer acceptable. What used to be unacceptable is now acceptable. What has happened? This has happened. There is a futility of their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And why is there a futility of their thinking? Because they did not repent. Repentance is intellectual. I used to think this way. Now I think this way. If I never repented, then I'm just going to keep thinking this way. And the more I go into my thinking this way, the darker it's going to get. Laid out in the scriptures. 
claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God. Get this. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. How silly. In other words, they said, uh, instead of worshiping God and elevating God, we are going to worship creation or we're going to worship ourselves or other human thinking. This is the signs, these are the signs of a crooked generation. Now, let me lay them out a little bit more clearly this morning, and uh, I'll lay out the the four that we can draw out of Romans chapter one, uh, and then I'll, I'll put them through the test, and we'll see if we're in a crooked generation. Some of you can probably already answer. Okay. You can identify, here's the four identifiers. You can identify a crooked generation when clear, obvious truths are rejected and replaced with ridiculous untruths. Untruths is a word. I looked it up. You can identify a crooked generation when the powers that be aim to suppress the truth through whatever means they have at their disposal. You can identify a crooked generation when the spirit of the day thinks its rejection of simple truths is actually wise when it is clearly foolish. Some sermons preach themselves. You can identify a crooked generation I just read that one. You can identify a crooked generation when it exchanges or when society exchanges the good for the bad. So that leaves us the question, are we in a crooked generation? Well, let's walk through the four tests. Test number one. By the way, you can tell a generation is increasingly crooked, increasingly darkened when these four tests, when these four indicators become more and more rampant. And so there's the filter, there's the setup. Now you can run it through your own head, okay? All right, test number one, are clear, obvious truths being rejected and replaced with ridiculous untruths? Hmm. So Thursday... My wife gave birth to a child. It took me three seconds to figure out that it was a boy and will always be a boy. It is a ridiculous untruth that the World Health Organization has actually gone, the World Health Organization has actually come out and said, no, gender and sexuality both exist on a continuum uh, and you cannot define male and female anymore. This is absolutely ridiculous. It is the building block of human life that we are male or female. You say, well, where would you get that idea, Stephen? From the Bible, which is as relevant today as the day that it was written, okay? I think we have this. Brittany, do we have the slides for the, the series? Okay, so I'll just tell you guys this now. Through this whole thing, we're going to take a five-week break on, um, on Acts in October. And we're going to do a series entitled Satan Hates Genesis 2. Okay, because he hates Genesis 1. We talked about that last week. He also hates Genesis 2. And in five weeks, I'm going to ask five questions. And we're going to talk about this as a church because it's completely being assaulted again. And we have to revisit it. And so it's going to be five questions. And here are the five questions. What is a man? What is a woman? Okay, what is a family? What is a marriage? And what is a society? And we are just going to walk through those in five weeks because we don't need the world to tell us what the Bible already told us, okay? Or clear, obvious truths being rejected and replaced with ridiculous untruths. Right now, one of the leading documentaries actually asks the question, what is a woman, right? And, uh, and is, uh, is, uh, it's almost as if Satan is like, how can I ruin people more? Let me take out the building block of their first part of their identity, male and female. It is ridiculous that my four-year-old knows better about gender than some of the elites of our world. So, strike one. 
Test number two. Are the powers to be suppressing the truth? Are the powers to be suppressing the truth? Well, the powers to be uh, today are interesting, right? There's, uh, there's a lot to say about who are the powers to be. So let's just look at one of the powers to be. They control our airwaves, okay, um, particularly uh, through social media channels, okay? And so Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook, which are doing their absolute best to suppress, whether it is through demonetization or blocking or limiting people who simply want to express the truth of God's word or ways um, that, uh, that are now applying God's word. And so the powers that be are doing what they can to suppress that, but at the same time, elevating absolutely ridiculous, vile things. And so it is easier and sometimes, uh, or you are more likely to suppress the truth of a statement that is factual from God's word than you are if you champion pedophilia. This is a crooked, broken world. And the powers to be are attempting to suppress it. Strike two. Whenever I have children, I get a little fired up, okay? Because you look at them and you go, who's going to teach this young man? Who's going to teach my two sons? Who's going to teach my daughter? I'm certainly not going to let the world tell them what is right. Test number three. Is the foolish coming off as wise and the wise foolish? I don't know if this is still true, but it was true at one point. There is a Harvard professor that identifies as a mermaid. I literally just said those words out loud. All you have to do is walk through a neighborhood and you will see a sign that says, we believe in science. And guess what that means? It doesn't mean that we believe in science of creationism. It doesn't mean that we believe in the science of male and female. It means that we believe in a politicized science to advance the agenda of the enemy. And it is being called wise. And people who believe the scriptures who believe in the Bible, that which is actually true, that which is actually right, that which is actually affirmed and confirmed uh, by human living and by the experience of society and culture for the, since the existence of the earth, those people are called ignorant, backwoods, or outdated. We've also moved beyond the point of logic or rationality which is another way of uh, saying that the wise is foolish and the foolish is wise. Because on one hand, we're supposed to question, and I say we, I mean society, is supposed to question what is a woman, and on the other hand, is supposed to fight for women's rights. These things are completely illogical. And society has said, this is wise. Strike three. Test number four. Is good being called bad and bad being called good? A couple weeks ago, I don't know how long ago it was now, I posted something on my Facebook about abortion. And, and when I posted it, somebody got on there and they said, oh, Stephen, you in particular as a pastor, I can't believe you would post something about this. Here's why they said that. Because there is a modern lie that the church and pastors in particular have to remain silent on political issues. I will not, I, I mean, in my plan right now, okay, and the 30, I'm, I don't want to say something I have to take back later. Uh, in my 36 years of life, okay, and 16 years of ministry, I've never gone up the stage and said, you need to vote for this person, you need to vote for that person. I'm also not going to get caught up in petty policy issues. That's not my job. Here is my job. Here is what I will be judged on. Did you stand for moral truth that is scriptural? And do not let the world silence the voice of pastors by saying or cloaking something as a political issue. Okay? <clears throat> but 
By the way, if you are looking for a church, now you know who we are. (laughs) Is good being called bad and bad being called good? I mean, and I just want you to know what I'm saying next, it comes with as much grace as I can say from stage when it comes to the issue of abortion. So please hear me on that. But we have a nation of people fighting, protesting, crying almost with religious fervor over the right to terminate and to kill the child. And this is being called good. Strike four. Now some would be like, you only get three strikes in baseball. It's 2022, man. Snowflakes, I don't know. You get four now, okay? I I think I first realized how crooked our generation had gotten. And there's a lot of indicators, but one that sticks out for me is the night Billy Graham died. The next night, I never watch Saturday Night Live. It's just not like I'm not in the habit of it. Um, But the next day, there were videos floating around that that came across. And it was the host of Saturday Night Live just absolutely destroying Billy Graham the day after he had died. And that was one of those first moments that I watched and I said, oh, this is bad. A man who committed his life to Christ, who walked in integrity, all of these things is now just being roasted, destroyed of character after his death. Yes, yes, we live in a crooked generation. And crookedness will get increasingly crooked until it is combated. We'll talk about that later. That was just pattern number one, an absolute rejection of truth. When Jesus was crucified by a crooked generation, though, he wasn't just crucified by the suppressors of truth. When Peter was saying, save yourselves from a crooked generation, he was probably, in particular, talking about the Jewish people and the religious leaders And uh, I'm not saying this to say, by the way, don't hear me wrong, I'm not saying the Jewish people are evil. I'm saying that the religious fervor there and its self-salvation plan was. And so we have to look at both sides of this. And friends, I would not be a good pastor if I didn't do this as well. And so Matthew chapter 23, Jesus gets fired up. Fired up. I don't know if you ever watched some of those fun YouTube videos to like fire yourself up, like Shia LaBeouf or whatever, okay? If you don't know who Shia LaBeouf is, just ignore that comment. If this one had been recorded by Jesus, you would like, you'd listen to it and it would fire you up. And Jesus, he gets, and who is his fire? Who's it pointed at? Not the truth suppressors. It's pointed at the self-salvationers the religious performers, because that is a crooked generation as well. And so Jesus goes through seven woes, and I'm not going to read all through Matthew 23 this morning, and uh, instead, what I'm going to do is, um, you know what? Yeah, I am. We're going to just change it up. Jesus' words are better than mine, okay? I'm just going to read through it, and then I won't even need to explain them. I'm going to start Matthew 23, verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across the sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell, Jesus' words, as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple, that he has made the gold sacred. And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift on the altar that makes the gift sacred. So whoever swears by the altar, swears by it and by everything on it. 
And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. This one gets me. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness, those you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. In other words, he's saying, stop thinking that your tithe makes you righteous. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You look good, you talk good, you dress good, you know the Christian things to say, but inside you are greedy and you are selfish. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and the outside also may be clean. Woe to you. Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You walk in, you worship, you say the right things, you raise your hands, you serve, you smile, but inward you are horrible. You're not good. You don't love people. You are racist. You do get jealous. You are prideful. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Woo! Jesus got fired up. He got fired up. You know why he got fired up? Because he looked out and he saw a crooked generation And the crooked generation that he saw was a religious group of people who, when it came down to it, didn't really care about him or anybody else. And that's crooked. And friends, we live, we live in a crooked generation, full of suppression of the truth and full of self-righteousness. And the tendency is that these two things are supposed to do this. The truth suppressors go over here, and the religious self-savers go over here, and you do your thing, and we'll do our thing. And we'll stay away from each other. And we'll vote our way, and you vote your way, and sometimes I'll win, and sometimes you'll win. But then what happens? What happens? Something usually happens in our life where, 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 where it brings the two sides together from a personal nature. Or, or something happens in our life when, uh, uh, when, we, uh, when we find ourselves face-to-face, right, with somebody who's on the other side or whatever, and then all of a sudden we realize, wow, there's, like, there's people on both sides of these. Human life that God loves. And both are crooked. So how do we save ourselves? And how do we combat the crooked generation? How do we combat both the suppression of the truth and the form of self-salvation that Christ would say, woe to you? Christ is on the cross. And on either side, there are two sinners, two people. And there's Christ in the middle. It's almost as if the two sinners on both sides represent the world and religion, both rebellion against God. The the two sides that put Christ on the cross, the world and religion. And one of them says to Christ, save yourself. Save yourself. And guess what Christ does not do? He does not save himself. What happens instead? He is crushed. 
by both the suppression of the truth and the weight of self-salvation. Both crookedness, sides of crookedness, fall on Christ on the cross and crush him to the point of death. Why? So that you and I could be saved from both. And the gospel doesn't just save us from suppression of the truth. It also saves us from self-salvation. It also saves us from this type of religious hypocrisy that Christ says, woe to you. The gospel. It's not the middle between the two. It's something altogether different. The gospel then breaks into the human heart where Christ then is the full embodiment of truth. No suppression whatsoever. And he brings that truth into the human heart, objective truth on who he is and what has occurred. But then truth that breaks into our heart that transforms us and he says sets us free. But at the same time, the gospel does that. It also draws from the other side. uh, uh, um, uh, He's also the full embodiment of grace and the fulfillment of the law. And so he takes all of that which crushed people on the other side and he fulfills it in his own righteousness and he fulfills it out of grace. And then what we have is a gospel that is both full of truth and full of grace. And this is what then pours into the human heart. This is the gospel that cuts to the heart. It's the gospel that makes it so that we repent and believe. And what do we repent of? I repent of suppression of the truth. And some of you, you might need to repent of that. You've fallen into the lies of the world. You've given into the ridiculous untruths. And you may need to repent. And others of us, what do we repent from? We repent from our self-righteousness, from our self-salvation, from our own thinking that says, I'm not like them, so I'm okay. I did it right when they did it wrong. We repent from that, and we do what? Exactly what the sinner on the other side did. Looked at Jesus and said, I know I'm wrong. I know I deserve this, but would you remember me? I know there's no reason for you to, but would you remember me? Jesus says, yeah, well, and today you'll be with me in paradise. And I know there's a lot more that goes in to our salvation and, you know, what's going on underneath and all of that moment, but simply that guy realizing, Jesus, I get it. It's all in you. It's all about you. Will you remember me? How do we save ourselves? We realize our desperate need to be saved from both the lies and the suppression of the truth and from our own self-salvation and self-performance. How do we save ourselves? We receive the grace of the gospel that reminds us I can only be saved through that. And that grace and that gospel breaks into our heart and it floods us with the Father's love. But I think Peter was actually getting more to more than, than just that, actually. And I want to say what else I think Peter was, was hinting at. Normally I would end here, but I want to keep going because um, I, I think save yourselves from this crooked generation. It starts with that, but there's actually another part of it that we see Peter um, illuminate, uh, by Peter I mean Paul, Paul illuminate in his letter to the Philippians. Uh, I'm going to start in Philippians chapter 2. Here's the second part of saving ourselves. It's receiving the grace of the gospel, but then it is this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. How do we save ourselves from this crooked generation? We know that it is the Holy Spirit who helps us grow in our, in our salvation. But here Paul helps us understand a little bit that, that there's a role for us to play. And he calls it working out your own salvation. Working out our own salvation is, again, standing at the cross and, and realizing I have been saved uh, from my suppression of the truth, or I have been saved from my self-salvation. Either way, it took grace to rescue me. Uh, And so the fear and trembling is, I know the propensity of the human heart to either run back to the suppression of the truth or the propensity of the human heart to begin to be inflated in my own self-righteousness and to run back to this side. That both are equally dangerous. 
And so to work out my salvation is to say, Father, I, I, I don't want to arrive at either one. I don't want to be um, darkened and futile in my thinking, as Paul would say, and I don't want Christ to look at me and say, woe to you. So I want to work this out. How do I work this out? Paul begins to tell us a little bit. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. Don't take credit even for your own growth, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's so funny that this verse that is about you working out your own salvation with fear and trembling ends up just still being all about God. Do you see that? Wait, Christian, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, it's God who's working in you, and it's actually for his good pleasure. Do you see that? We're so good at making the Bible about ourselves. It's about God. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Then he, then he gives us, he, he lays out something for us. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do all things. Engage in church without grumbling and disputing. Love your family without grumbling and disputing. Exist in the midst of a crooked generation without grumbling or disputing. Why? That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish. What? In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Do you want to remain pure and blameless before God in the midst of a truth suppression crooked generation? Do you want to remain innocent and pure and blameless before God in the midst of a self-righteous performing religious generation? How do you do it? Stop complaining, stop arguing, stop disputing all of those and remain in the midst of it. In other words, because uh, here's what happens uh, oftentimes is that on this side, what people is, will do is it's almost like they get a drive-by through the suppression and they go, oh, man, I don't want any of that. I'm just going to go hide and isolate. Now, Paul says in the midst of it, in the midst of it, you stay in it. Don't, don't go run and hide from the big bad world. I'm not saying you can't use wisdom or prudence, okay? I'm not saying that we don't have a, an obligation in many ways to protect our children, okay? But we can't just hide and isolate. He says stay in the midst of it. On the other side, what begins to happen is people, they, they go through this self-righteousness, right? And they often, they'll see it in the church and they'll go, oh, those, those hypocrites. Oh, they're all a bunch of self-righteous people. Oh, they're so judgmental, all of this kind of stuff. And what do they do? They sneak all the way out through and then they say, ah, I don't need church. I don't need church. No. Both were supposed to remain in the midst of it, which means I'm supposed to stay right in it. And somehow as a follower of Christ, clothed in the gospel, uh, we can stand in the midst of the suppressive generation. We can stand in the midst of a self-righteous or religious or corrupted or whatever other generation. So for what purpose? That you might shine as lights in the world. The clothed now with the gospel of truth and grace. You might be able to be clothed in the light of Christ over here. Right? And carry the light of grace over here to a world that needs it. And the light of truth in a gracious way. And that over here to this generation, you might be able to look at them and say, hey, this guy's, remember, the thing that God rescued you from was really your gracelessness. And so I know you have your truth, but let's make sure it's gracious. Because what those people over there don't need is just the truth. What they need is the gospel, and the gospel is both grace and truth. And this is where, by the way, Christians get it wrong. When they think, oh, there are the truth suppressors. What they need is truth. The line to bring them truth must go through the gospel first. Because if what happens is if the self-religious or self-performers, if they circumvent the gospel and just go over here to bring their truth, there will never actually be any, any conversion. Okay? Because it is the gospel that converts. And the gospel is both. You following me? It's both. 
He says, and when you do this, here's what you do. You become lights in the world. You're lights in the world. You're, you're lights in the crooked and twisted world. You're lights over here because you are full of grace and truth. And you are lights over here because you are full of grace and truth. And this group over here, they might need to see your grace and be reminded of it. And that group over there, they need to see your truth and they need to be reminded of it. And, and it's both. But you're lights then. You're lights among whom you shine as lights in the world. He said, here's the only way you're going to be able to do this. You have to hold fast to the word of life. You're not going to be able to do this on your own. You're just going to have to cling to Jesus as you do it. You're going to have to cling to Christ. You're going to have to cling to the word of life. You're going to have to cling to Jesus. You're going to have to cling to the scriptures. You're going to have to know them. You're going to have to study them. You're working out your own salvation. That's why we do what we do around here. That's why I preach how I preach. That's why we do all of the other stuff that we do. That's why I encourage you to get involved and engage because you have a salvation to work out on your own and with fear and trembling. And it's about clinging to Jesus. We got to grow up in faith. We got to go, uh, whatever metaphor you want to use, we got to have deep roots. We got to be uh, rooted in Christ. We got to go richly and deeply into Christ. Why? Because if we err to either one of these sides, the propensity is going to be to, to give in to the crookedness. If we hang out over here too much, the propensity is going to be to become, uh, to, to, to start wavering on truth. And that's not okay. But um, equally dangerous is we're going to get over here and we're going to start wavering on grace. Also not okay. We're going to start thinking it's about us. We're going to start thinking we're better than them. We're going to start making opposition, me and them, and all of those things. And neither one is the gospel. Neither one. Neither one. So we hold fast to Jesus we hold fast to the word of life. Why? So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in life, run in vain or labor in vain. That's Paul is saying. He's saying, hey, this guy's, guy's, Paul is saying, this is the only way you're going to be able to live this out in such a way that Paul's going to be able to look and be done and say, oh, I did my job. I did my job. You, you, you saved yourself in the midst of the crooked generation because you grew up in Christ, because you knew how to balance truth and grace, and because on both sides of the crookedness, you shone as lights. And you say, well, that sounds really hard. Here's the really good news. Peter tells it to us 30 or so years later after this sermon. He says, you don't have to do it alone, and you weren't meant to do it alone. You say, oh, yeah, we have the Holy Spirit. We do, but we also have something else. He says, you don't... Just have the Holy Spirit to help you in this. In fact, you get something else to help partner you through this process of shining as lights in the midst of a crooked generation. You get someone to help you save yourselves. And here's what it is. He says, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And the very next thing is in the making and the birthing of the church. You see, what happens is this, you get rescued out of it. Am I a Christian? I don't know. Has the gospel cut to your heart? Have you repented intellectually, emotionally, and practically? Have you repented? Have you been baptized physically? Yes. Okay? Uh, and then now carrying the new identity of Christ. Have you received this gift of the Holy Spirit to help you grow up in your faith? Okay, what is the natural process next then? It says that they were added. They were included into, into what? The church. got strategy for redeeming the crooked world, both the religious crooked and the irreligious crooked has always been his church. That's been his strategy. And I know that sometimes we look and we go, ah, yes, church, but what is Church. Well, we see it right here in Acts chapter 2, and we're going to spend the next six or seven weeks talking about, now that's church. Now that's church. Well, we just saw a 19-year-old, like, ushering in the presence of God through a worship. That's, that's church. People who have gotten forgotten about, um, um, turned away other places, finding community. Now that's Church. Peter, in, uh, in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he lays it out and he says, here's how you combat the crooked generation. You don't throw things at them. You don't uh, yell at them. You don't isolate. He says, here it is. This is how you combat the crooked generation. He says, let me tell you what you are. Instead of being a part of the crooked generation, he says this. He says, you are a chosen generation. That's what you are. 
You got pulled out of the crookedness and you got pulled out of it for a reason. And some of us, we got pulled out of the truth suppression crookedness and others of us, like me, got pulled out of the self-righteous, self-performance crookedness, equally crooked. And now we find ourselves in something new, a chosen generation. He says, you're a chosen generation. You're a royal priesthood. Why a royal priesthood? Because you now carry the ministry of Christ. That's why. He says, you are a holy nation. You are a kingdom within the kingdom of this world, but you're not isolated in one place. You spread abroad, carrying the news of the king. You are his own special people. Why? Why? So that you might hide, so that you might isolate, so that you might feel good, so that you might pat each other on the back? No. So that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For me, so that I can stand up here and look at any of you who are still caught in your self-salvation and say, I was there. I was there in the darkness of self-salvation where I thought my performance meant something. And then grace hit me. And when it did, it freed me in such a way that I didn't have any choice but to say, what do you want me to do? And he said, I don't know, but every Sunday, get up there and talk, okay? And others of you, you have been freed from the suppression of the lies of the enemy. Why? So that you can look at that part of the crooked generation and so that you can help this part of the crooked generation or this part of the chosen generation go, I understand that side. Let me help. And let me look at them and say, guys, there's a better way. There's a way, the truth, and the life. Stop suppressing. Start believing. And the church then is the combination of the people being rescued out of the crookedness, brought in to be a chosen generation to then operate as his strategy of redemption, his church. And that's why we're so adamant about the way we do things around here. It's why we're so adamant that this is God's church. It's not mine. It's not a group of people. It's not a small group of people. It's not who gives the most. It's not who serves the most. It's his. Why? Because the moment it becomes somebody else's, it loses its power. And there's a world that needs it. It's why we say things got to stay simple and meaningful. Why? Because it can never be about what we do up here. It can never be about all of our formulas and all of our methods. It has to be about the gospel because only the gospel can redeem a life. It's why everyone always has to be invited to experience redemption, both the religious and the irreligious, because the chosen generation is made up of people who have been rescued from both sides. It's why we always have to believe the Bible and stand for the truth of God's word because the moment we take it out, what do we have to stand on? It's why we believe that we don't just say yes to faith and come in and settle, but we grow up in faith to be disciples and servant leaders. Why? Because you have work to do. And some of you, you have grown lazy in your work. You've taken on your salvation, but you have stopped working for the kingdom. You've begun to build your own. And I'm calling you back off the bench because we are in the midst of a crooked generation and it needs your help. Get back in the game, please. And it's why we always say we're a post-denominational and multi-generational experience because we can't do this with a bunch of young people. We can't do this with a bunch of old people. We can't do this with a bunch of people who are just like me. We need all of us. It's also why we're a post-denominational church because goodness, read Romans 1 and Matthew 23 and tell me we're supposed to argue about secondary document do- doctrines. Get over yourself. Get over your pride. Start focusing on what actually matters, a world that is in darkness. We spend so much time in the church arguing about the foolish things. Stop whenever you do that. It's because you've gotten so self-centered and you have forgotten that there are lost people that need a unified church. Let's go get them. Stop fighting with ourselves. This is why we're so adamant about these things. It's why we're so adamant about believing in financial integrity because the last thing we need is the world to look in at the church and see us abusing how we handle the thing that it worships the most. 
When the world worships money the most, that means the church has an incredible opportunity to not worship money and to be generous with it. And then the world goes, wow, they even think about that differently. What an opportunity. What an opportunity. And when all of those things come together around here, we call that the church that Jesus came to plant. And we can't do it on our own. And we're not smart enough to do it on our own. And so we have to operate in real humility and real grace and give grace one to another and root ourselves in the truth of Scripture and humbly serve and work through difficulty and all of those types of things. And when we do that, God breathes his life and we then can proclaim the majesties of Christ to a dark world. And that's church. And next week, we're going to spend six, seven, I don't know, We'll see how many weeks it is. And we're going to look at it. And here's what I want to do. And I'm praying that God would give me the words. Is that over the next six weeks or so, as we talk through this, that you would be more energized than you have been at any time in your life to engage in God's strategy of redeeming a dark, crooked world. Because it exists. But we are carriers of the solution, the gospel. Because we have been receivers of the solution, the gospel. Let's pray. Father, it is easy sometimes for us to get fired up about the truth suppression that we see, and rightfully so, because it is an affront against your standards. But Father, I pray that we would equally get fired up when we see religious hypocrisy. Because you did, Jesus. These are both affronts against the gospel. Instead, Father, I pray that you would unify your church, that you would work the gospel in us so deeply, rooting out all of these things that get in the way. Father, I pray that you would give us a heart, like Paul talks about in Romans 10.1, I longed that they would be saved. He longed for it, Lord. Would we long for people's salvations? Would you teach us then how to be effective in that? And so, Father, I'm praying that starting today and then into this Wednesday when we have church night and then into these next few weeks, Father, I'm praying that you would unify us, equip us, energize us unlike we ever have been before. It is easy to see the darkness, Lord, but when it is darkest, light shines the brightest. So right here, in our little cut field of Monclova, and then in our hearts as followers of Jesus, would you teach us how to shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, bringing the gospel to those who need it? In Jesus' name, we make this request. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to take a next step with Redemption Church, visit us online at experienceredemption.com slash connect card. You can also give online to support the work of Redemption Church. To explore your giving options, visit experienceredemption.com slash give online. We hope that the message you heard today encouraged you. See you again soon.